did someone say? Did weird someone say? trick mafia. It's the weird trick mafia. <laughs> We're back. Back again. Who's here today? Uh, you got Jesse, obviously. <laughs> you got Andrew, and then you've got Lachlan Evenson. Hello, everybody. It's great Lachlan to be here. Evenson, welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been I heard a big you have some stories to tell. Some oh, stories yeah. To share. Yeah, so the, the stories to share <laughs> a little bit about me. So I come from a, a family of storytellers, so I'm well astute to telling a good story. And my father would always say, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So we'll see how we go. Um, so, yeah, uh, I was uh, I bo born and grew up in Australia, um, as my accent kind of alludes to. Um, but I didn't grow up in the places that everybody knows and loves. Have you ever noticed Americans don't really know accents very well? Uh, yes. I, I often get um, uh, uh, England or some part of England. Um, but yes, uh, not Australia. So I have to kind of explain it to people. So if I'm mistaken for a New Zealander, that's the utmost compliment because they're much nicer than Australians. Much nicer. There are, like, subtle differences <laughs> between New Zealand and Australian accents. Yeah, so I'm not, uh, let me not, I'll, I'll explain how it sits in my ears because I like to say when people say to me, hey, you have an accent, I say, actually, you have an accent because that actually makes them think about what the heck is an accent. Um, but anyway, so New, New Zealanders to an Australian's ear, they do what I call a vowel displacement. So if you're saying fish, they would say fush. So they replace the I with a U. If they were saying six, uh, they would say sucks. If it was chips, it would be chops. Uh, that would be my ear hearing them. So a lot of it's in the vowel. The vowel is just a little bit displaced. It also feels more sing-songy to me. Uh, yeah. I mean, compared to, you know, South African or like some of the more like guttural accents. Anyway. Yeah, it's quite a pretty language. I would recommend Flight of the Concords, which is a HBO. I love show. it. Oh, yes. Awesome. Those, those people are awesome, but go watch them. I would recommend specifically the one where they dated an Australian woman. It's hilarious. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, those are classic. So you built the internet, I heard. Yeah, I built, I built the internet uh, with, a help from, with help from a few friends, obviously. So, yeah, I, you know, going back to uh, kind of growing up in Australia... I really loved... Was you know, Al Gore there? Was, was what, Al Gore there? No, I'm just kidding. In, in spirit, definitely. <laughs> Almost certainly, you know. Through the, I think he's Canadian, of Canadian descent. So we have the Commonwealth, you know, uh, connection there. Uh, but, you know, growing up, I remember being introduced to the internet. You know, it would have been like 98. There was a big initiative in Australia to get the internet to everyone. So outside of the United States, where it was still, you know, it was fairly prevalent, we had access. I grew up in kind of a, on the border of the desert in a place called Queensland, which is the state, the town's called Charleville. So if you look it up, it's, it's about west. You know where Brisbane is? Brisbane's on the east, the northeast side of Australia, on the Pacific, the side closest to America, as I like to say, because um, east coast, west coast is confusing from different countries. So most of the people live on the east coast of Australia. You go straight inland, uh, 700 kilometres, like 350 miles. It's about seven hours, eight hours drive. And this town existed because it was on like a, a train route. But in World War II, this is a kind of a semi-interesting story. So if you go look it up, General MacArthur, who led the Pacific effort for the United States uh, military, was housed in Australia. And there was a line called the Brisbane Line. So go look up the Brisbane Line. But the Brisbane Line is um, if Australia was invaded, that's the part of the country they were willing to give away. 
Um, so the Americans actually housed a lot of their forces and all the Allied forces behind this line. Charleville was right behind that line in the desert, so nobody would think to bomb it. So it's like a circuit that. breaker. It's like a circuit breaker. It's a circuit breaker, yeah, totally, totally. You can be so down. We have this massive airfield that you can land 747s on. So, um, you know, this town's small, two and a half thousand people. I was, in high school every year was about 20 kids in my grade. Um, so pretty small, but we had the internet. Um, and Qantas, uh, as most people don't know, is an acronym. You know the airline Qantas? Yeah. It's Queensland and Northern Territory Aviation Service. Whoa. So it's an acronym, but it actually flew from Longreach to Charleville. And the only reason it could do that with such a massive plane is because of the World War II airfield they had there. So that's kind of our claim to fame. Anyway, back to the internet. Uh, so I started tinkering with the internet. and So this was, is, you're born in the outback, basically. Born in the outback, yeah. <laughs> I was one of those people. Beyond the black stump, it would be the saying that we would say. So that's in the middle of nowhere. Or whoop whoop would be another, another slang. I feel like that's more common than... Like, I hear of people from Australia, it seems like almost everyone is like that, or no? Yeah, I feel like they all have those, um, those roots, but most people just cling to the cities or tie themselves to the cities. You know, I'm from Sydney, but maybe they're actually from way away from Sydney, like 10 hours drive, you're still in the same state. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So those kind of perspectives, I mean, you know, for somebody from Arizona, maybe they, they're... But if you're in the Northeast, 10 hours, you've gone through five, six states. Um, so yeah, that kind of capacity. So growing well, up there, so you, you have this love of computers that sort of sparks in the yeah, sparks. So it kind of sparks around the internet. I'm really fascinated. I'm fascinated about how I can be sitting in the middle of nowhere and connecting with somebody on the other side of the world. Like that, like fuses something in my mind. And I, I grew up with the computers in the house and I was really interested in programming. Um, but it kind of took me to a different place where I was interested in plumbing. Like, how does that, you know, a lot of people say, what is that blue cable that hangs out of the wall? And you don't really care about how the packets get across. Like, if the internet's working, you don't care how it works. But I was one of those people who like, you know, how does this system work? So as I kind of grew up, I went to college and I did computer science, but I majored in um, data communications, right? And it's like, you get down to signal processing. What is Manchester encoding? Like, how much voltage signifies a one or a zero? And like how they were doing that in the early days, you know, military times and, and making that more um, available to civilians. But I was really like, I was like the Lego guy growing up. I love putting things together and software didn't give me that same kick. You know, I, I never felt like I had something in my hand at the end of the day that I could show people. It was always like, look at this thing I wrote and people like, but that's just a black screen. It's like, but I can, I can calculate pi to, you know, the upteenth decimal place. And it's like, yeah, but why do you look in that black screen? And I was like, oh, this is not giving me the kicks I want. So I went into like data communications after college and I worked on a lot of, um, you know, government contracts, building pieces of the internet and plumbing things. So yeah, that's so how, how, did you, I, how did you get out of the outback? And then, and then what's kind of the story, like what's the, what's the technology and kind of the, the story that got you to wherever you are now? Right, where, so, where yeah, you, you know. Where, like, let's tell people where you are real quick. What was that? Where are you right now? Like, what are you where doing? are I? Yeah, so <laughs> the destination, I'll tell you the end of the story, then we'll go back how we got here. So I work for Microsoft. I'm a, um, a project manager, a program manager, um, and I work on specifically upstream projects um, in, the, in the cloud native space. So our job is basically uh, supporting sustainable contribution to open source 
endeavors. So whether that's us creating open source or us contributing to other projects in this space. And that's kind of how I had um, met Jesse. We'd worked on a few things uh, during her tenure here. So um, Jesse and I have re remained in contact. So that's what I do today. Uh, I think cloud native is going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big Maybe, deal. maybe, hopefully. I'm betting my salary on it. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah, I've heard a little about that. Um, so that's kind of the, the destination, but um, yeah, growing, growing up, going to college, doing the, the comp side. So, and where was college? So you let, yeah. College okay, yeah. Out back, right? You went to a city. Yeah, I moved to the city. You know, that was the first time I had McDonald's. Um, wow. Because it was that, that far away. Um, I moved to Brisbane, which was the nearest city, um, a, a college called uh, the Queensland U University of Technology. That's where I went. Um, so yeah, that's where I went to college. I kind of got my feet wet. College, like I, I didn't love it so much as much as I loved building stuff. So it wasn't like the, the most useful part of my time, just the way I learn. Um, so when I got out into the field, you know, I was thrown into uh, wireless communications. So this was when 802.11b was out and building wireless uh, systems. But one of the really cool projects I got to work on was, um, have you ever heard of free space optics? So using lasers to do data communications. So, you know, 802.11b was like, hey, I can do 54 meg, half duplex. People are like, you know, that's great maybe for 2001, but how do you get gig, 10 gig over vast distances? And it turns out, you know, light's actually a really good uh, transmission media to do it through air. So we'd work on free space optical lasers and the way they'd work is you'd have two buildings or two high points and you basically tune these lasers, which were really precise in their field of view. And then you would just drive, you know, one to 10 gig connections across these lasers. Um, and they have actually done hookups. Like fog would be a problem. Fog is actually the worst thing. So light refraction through fog is, wow. um, was horrible. Um, so yeah, you learn about things like that. You learn about the curvature of the earth. So how far you can go in a straight line before you hit the, you know, where you can't see in a straight line anymore. I think that's. Someone should like tell the flat earthers about. No, they actually told them that. And they, they actually, <laughs> yeah, go, watch, go watch the Netflix. They, they like try to do this experiment and everything they do basically proves the earth has curvature and they're just like finding ways to to like explain to themselves why yeah anyway they, they do a laser experiment on. That. i'm gonna watch it yeah no it's 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 really good um frustratingly good i would say <laughs> so i i can only imagine the kinds of people that that need this kind of data with with lasers uh or, or would be willing to like fund it uh so right. government organizations and or satellites so, the, you know, one of the projects that the company I was working with was doing um, uplinks to satellites for very short periods of time, but you could get, you know, very low latency to low uh, Earth orbit objects for, you know, three to five minutes. Just uh, if a bird flew through that laser, it would be instantly microwaved, oh my God. <laughs> you know, from the inside out. So it's very powerful stuff. But that was, you know, really interesting. And then from there, I kind of moved on to, I worked on um, wave division multiplexes. Um, and these are really cool devices if you never heard of them, but basically they take light that goes into a fiber optic cable and split it out into different wavelengths. So as we know, light, visible lights, many wavelengths, and then you've got non-visible spectrums as well. But basically the way that these things work is if you have one piece of fiber, you can split it down into wavelengths and then hook up 
you know, GBICs or whatever to either end and split out those wavelengths so that you can multiplex things together. I, I read about this before. I, I never played with it, but basically, like theoretically, each each spectrum or you know each band of the spectrum can be its own channel, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, when I started, it was like for one fiber, you might be able to get, you know, twelve channels because they, the lasers got more precise and more accurate over time and stronger. And then, you know, by the time I was not working in that anymore, you, you could be 64, 10 gig channels, right? So wow. there was coarse wave division multiplexing and dense. And dense was like the ability to split. And the other thing with um, fiber. So it's probably both the lasers and the sensors. Get like lasers, the sensors, and the fiber. Because okay. the refractive index from the glass, what they call it a watermark. So the core of the glass, this is like super interesting to me maybe other people but the core of the glass, to keep the light in the core of the glass like it's bouncing around it's not yeah. in a straight line and the cables don't sit in a straight line so you can't go past the refractive index where it'll bounce out of the cable uh, bounce out of the glass um what that used to be is a really of the whole core of fiber it used to be a very small percent in the middle and they called the rest above the threshold or above the watermark where the refractive index was too great for you to drive a laser through it so, but they got better glass. But, and then doesn't the refractive index change based on the wavelength? So it would be different for a different. Um, it's totally, totally like go back to high school physics with lenses. It's really, but what they did with the fiber was make it zero watermark. So it doesn't matter where you shoot it in the core of the fiber, you will have equal refractive index for a given wavelength so that you can basically shove more light down the, down the, the fiber or the core. So this is like super interesting. And then, you know, I learned about how uh, these cable systems, I was talking about the internet and how we cable the internet. But basically for a lot of people that don't know, we've actually run cables around the whole earth under the ocean. And they come to landing points. And basically there's some really good YouTube videos on how they do it. But basically they sync these cables. Um, and these cables have many cores, so many fibers. And they come to these landing points in different parts of the world. Um, and then basically you hook up wave division multiplexes and, you know, the total capacity of that cable system might be one terabit per second because it's basically what can I divide the light into by the number of cores there are. Um, and every few years, you know, the, you notice that the capacity goes from one terabit per second to 10 to 100 to 1000. And a lot of people are like, did they lay more fibers? And it's like, no, the equipment gets better and they just roll in a new kit and plug it in and basically get more, um, more channels on that. So it's like super, super interesting. But there used to be a site called Greg's Cable Map where you could go and look at every cable system on earth. Um, and you can, buy, you can buy waves is what they call it. So if I'm AT&T, if I'm some telecom company, I would lease a wave or a core on these cable systems from let's say the west coast of the United States across to Japan, and I would lease that. And companies now, when I was doing that, well, that was all companies would do it and lease it back. But you know, Google and Microsoft and large companies now have their own fiber systems yeah. that are terrestrial and you know submarine. So that's where I got into that kind of field. It's a few dollars, a few pennies to lay that stuff. Yeah, oh, and sure. it's super, super interesting. Like, um, but if, they group it right. They so group like, it, yeah. Microsoft and Google could potentially be in the same grouping of fibers, right? Right. Or like, I don't know. Do you think like maybe, because one of the problems with Australia is like the latency 
over, do you think that maybe there will be like innovations in the future or something? Well, it's so far from everywhere. Yeah. But like, could it, I feel like nothing is impossible, right? So like, could it? Quantum, quantum networking. Yeah. <laughs> quantum entanglement on Earth. Entanglement. Yeah, people are kind of working on this, actually. They're trying to. Yeah, well, it's like it's it's interesting that you should ask because a lot of the endeavors are can I get because you know people look at the projection of the Earth and think that the fastest way between point A and point B is in this direction, when you forget about it being a sphere and it's like when I fly from New York City to England, it's not like I fly straight across the Atlantic. I go over Greenland and come back down. So with like global warming as one thing, people can run cables up through the Arctic now and make shorter routes. Now, I think the biggest driver for this, like latency-wise, obviously countries, but um, financial markets. The other thing is like terrestrial cables. So one of the systems that I was looking at when I was working was one that went across Russia, because to get from Tokyo to England for the stock exchanges, um, the cable systems were really indirect. So it was like, how can we run a terrestrial one across Russia to, to actually get to England you know, faster? Um, so yeah, that's what I started working on in Australia. And I really was fascinated with language, spoken language as well. So I said, you know what, I've done this engineering job for a while. I'm going to move to Japan. Um, and I'm going to learn Japanese. So did you get fluent in Japanese? I did. Nice. Is it yeah. really hard? I feel like that'd be super hard. Uh, it is hard. Japanese is kind of a tricky language because it doesn't have like the, um, the sound or whatever. So you, however you say something is the right pronunciation. So you don't have to worry about that, but it gets harder because the written script is basically. So yeah, like in computing, this is a really good analogy. It's like you took the, the spec and modified it to a different runtime. So basically they had no written language in Japan. They had spoken language. The monks, the Buddhist monks went over to China to do, you know, a tour, tour of duty in China. They came back and they retrofitted the Chinese language to the Japanese sounds. Oh, that's very confusing. So, so I'm far from fluent in, in Japanese, but I like studying languages. And it's, it's like the kanji are this retrofitted uh, Chinese characters. And yep. then you have two different alphabets because you have one alphabet for the native uh, words and you have another alphabet to designate the words that came from another language. And so there's like, yeah, it's it's crazy. Whoa. They're called the kanji. Kanji is the Chinese ones. And then there's yeah. like Hiragana. I feel like that's also a breakfast food with like egg and rice. <laughs> and like milk. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah. Right. So you, one of the sayings like kanji, so for the, for the Chinese characters, um, to read a newspaper, you'd have to know a minimum of 2,000 individuals. But the really interesting thing that we don't have with Roman letters um, is they pack meaning, like the ideograms. So it's like to draw a to draw a tree, you literally draw a tree. To draw a forest, you draw three trees together. Uh, to draw the sun, it's the same as the word for day. So it's like a day is one sun. Okay, that makes sense. So there's a lot of like intrinsic meaning that we don't get from the alphabet. That's super cool. That, and, and they're like Legos where you can click them together and have denser meaning. There's like a long philosophical conversation about how language shapes your thinking, right? And, and each of these languages kind of imposes a paradigm on how you think about the world, um, whether you like that or not, it, it, it's true. And, and I feel like, I mean, I haven't, I'm not fluent in Japanese. Uh, I studied a bunch of different languages and I'm kind of mediocre in a bunch of them, but 
basically like when you think about things in Chinese or Japanese, like it's actually slightly different framing in your brain. Like I totally got that. And people would say, I lived there for like three and a half years. People would say to me, like, do you dream in Japanese? And I was like, I don't know what that means. And it caused me to question like, what is my inner dialogue and what is my inner thought? And more often than not, it's, it's constructed in the way that we speak, the way that I rationalize my thinking, which I think is super interesting, right? So That's but like the end, of the, the end of it, I actually had a dream one evening and the whole thing was in Japanese. So the interesting thing before it, it was like when I would speak Japanese, I would literally be passing Japanese back to English before it hit yeah. my brain, before it hit disk. Right, so it's, like, it's like it's like you got out of the VM and you got a new operating system layer. Oh, it's it's totally that, and like it's inefficient, it's slow, it's error prone, and Japanese does these real interesting things. It's not redundant. Like English is really redundant in like you have to say who, what, when, where, and why in almost every sentence. So if you miss bits, you can catch up on the context. It's like today I rode a bike, then I did this, then I went to work. Um, so you have like the sequencing and who did what. Whereas Japanese, you just do the setup, then just rattle off verbs. So it's like, today I woke up, walk, ran, swam, went to bed. What? So if you just pick, if you cut in at the walk, it's like, I don't know who, I don't know when this happened. The other thing is tenses. So we kind of have past, present, and future. Japanese only has past and future. There's just a way that you could designate that the future is happening right now. That's crazy. And which is, it's like those things are like. So, so how did your dream take you from, I mean, you had this Japanese dream and then <laughs> you're building the internet. How's that, how's that end up in cloud native Microsoft? Cloud native. Okay. So this is, this is great. Okay. So it turns out that that school I was working for to actually teach English to Japanese people to fund myself going, studying Japanese in Japan went bankrupt. Now I, I had to basically get a job or my visa was null and void in Japan. I was six months in. Everybody said I was crazy for going to Japan and not being an engineer. I had a good job. You know, you know that story, right? Don't do this. You're, you've got a great life. But I was like, you know, this is a time to... I actually went back into engineering and I fell into a job in the um, kind of the financial services. I basically wrote exchanges for banks um, that ha was headquartered in New York City, but we had a base in, in Tokyo. So kind of I picked up that thing again, but in the spirit, it wasn't government agencies. It was actually con connecting exchanges. So like financial exchanges. So this is like low latency stuff, cable lengths, all this stuff matters. And I got into that kind of world of how to route traffic between markets, you know, but from the infrastructure up. And so were you trying to do the, like the anti-arbitrage type of stuff or? Yeah, the, the software on top, you know, it was basically, it was owned by an independent sovereign entity. So banks could trade with each other. Yeah. And, and you know, do all those kind of things because banks usually had their own platforms, but this company had its own that was not owned by any bank. So they would trade with each other through this platform. So it wasn't trading stocks in like the high frequency type stuff. It was mostly the clearinghouse or that kind of stuff? Yeah, so we were connected to clearinghouses. We weren't a clear ourselves, but basically we would give you the market data, which pricing data is also really cool tech if you want to get into like multicast and dropping ticks. Yeah. Because what you see on your phone when a stock changes is actually you're dropping like 10,000 changes per second just so you can see one. Um, but we, we basically presented ways for people to slice up orders, 
in different, um, you know, whether they were equities or bonds or all those kind of things. So yeah, we were working on that. So I, I did that for a couple of years and I had the opportunity to move to New York City. When I moved to New York City, that was the, the head office of that company. I, I still kind of built data centers and built pieces of the internet and connected exchanges. But I found the networking piece kind of boring after a while. It was never changing and people were happy with what they had and nothing had much had changed. So I was kind of, I liked the automation movement, right? And network devices were really horrible to automate. And it was like, if I have to configure another BGP router, you know, you know, this is, I don't want to do this. Um, so I, I started getting into virtualization and automation and that's kind of where from there in New York city, I got the opportunity to come out to Silicon Valley because I um, was looking at starting to do networking at higher level abstractions. So the cloud was becoming a thing and I was like, well, how's networking work there? And then I looked at it and it was the same thing as how it always used to work just at a software layer. And then I went, you know, I'm out, let me go do um, automation of services and distributed systems. So it was funny when I think about the internet that I was working on and what I work on now, it was like, when I first look at Kubernetes, for example, I went, this is MPLS for workloads. And this is such a networking person. It's like, we have a way to switch labels on networking traffic around the internet. It's almost like the language that you know frames out your brain thinks, right? It, it's exactly how it is. And it's like, you know, I, I don't want to think of it like that. And it's like, BGP is just a state machine, you know, that holds the information where to put a packet. And, you know, I realized that a lot of the work I'd done that set me up in the internet space, it set me up around understanding distributed systems, failures, tolerance, um, availability. So, so watching this, this kind of networking thing evolve in the cloud native, if some, from someone who has such a core kind of networking background, doesn't some of it feel kind of inefficient and, and like sloppy or like how you think about the, cause it like when people start talking about underlay overlay, like, all this stuff and then we're going to have Istio and, and, and then like, does it actually work? Like it just gets where it's like, Oh, it'd be nice if this just worked and, and like was fast. Yeah, absolutely. It does feel inefficient. And you know, I remember measuring, I mean, you've all probably done this, but it's like, how much can you keep in an ASIC? So it doesn't have to be CPU switched, right? As soon as a packet would leave an ASIC in a networking device, your throughput goes to kerfuffle. And basically, however complex of a decision matrix to route a packet through the kernel you had would be how many times it had to go back up through the CPU. And each one, you would pay a tax. So when you're talking about terabits, you know, gigabits per second, this is the biggest inhibitor too. So, you know, there's always been that, is it just software? Is it a mixture of software and hardware? Is it FPGAs? Is it ASICs? Um, and how do you do that dance of, cause you know, there's people who are just like, I can run everything in the Linux kernel, you know, on any commodity hardware, you know, um, cumulus networks was built on this, right. But once you get up into the higher level abstractions, it's like how many times do you have to go through a CPU and can I offload those decisions to some lower level abstraction that knows how to build and push a hash table into an ASIC like that actually matters. So yeah, that's why I like like eBPF and the promise there because like you can filter a packet before it even like allocates memory. Um, right. It's like just do it before anything else happens because I don't want to have to deal with it. But like that would be that's nicer than. But I mean, just doing it on hardware is even better than that. So. But what about all these IP table rules that we have? 
feel like you're trying to rile me up again and <laughs> it's not gonna work. I am resisting. <laughs> yeah, totally. So looking at, you know, I always like to say, you know, my overlay, you know, my overlay is somebody else's underlay. Or, you know, the inverse is also true. So you are sitting on top of software somehow. It's just how efficient are they at pushing a packet through a decision matrix and getting it back out on the wire? Because none of the none of the text changed. I think the biggest thing that's riled me up a lot is I was on the IPv6 bandwagon very early. Oh, yeah. And like I learned it, I worked in it, I did dual stack, we did six in four. So one of the great ways to actually scale your network was to put all your IPv4 on V6, because then you could abstract it. But the uptake of V6 has been really slow, and I think that's you know, around tooling. People love decimal. They don't like hex. Um, so nothing type in nothing hex will change thing. until there's a crisis. Nothing will change. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I think people, as much as they rag on um, DNS, like DNS then becomes critical for IPv6 to be oh, sure. user-friendly because you can't remember addresses anymore. Who, who remembers an address now? Anyway, yeah, I feel like I was really good, you know, but um, for, for a long time I could know all you know, I, I took pride in knowing IPv4 addresses, but I gave up. But you can get vanity prefixes in V6. You know, Facebook owns F-A-C-E-B-0-0-C or something, right? Whatever oh, in hex. Cool. So you get the vanity prefixes, you get the slash 16. And that's get, cool. Okay. I can see Jesse's wheel spinning now. She's yeah, like, shit. I'm going to go get my vanity. some more money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're dirt cheap. You can get slash 32s for almost nothing. Well, so also I was looking at the difference between the RFC for IPv4 and then the various RPV, R, RFCs for IPv6, and it's like, they only became more complex. Like, shit is not getting easier. Easy, it's getting yeah. more intense. And it's like, how much of this do I have to actually implement? And how much of this is, like, not real? Like, how do you know? Totally. Yeah, it's, and it's, you know, V4, IPv4, which, which was all fixed headers, no extensions, right? So what happens with things like Envoy is they start stuffing stuff into the payload. Right, because it's like I don't have any space in the header to signify one thing from another, so I start getting into the payload. V6 has extension headers, and you can slap on as many as you want. So I think not having a space where people have thought about extensions has made people go, "Well, I don't know what to do here." Whereas IPv4, we'll, people will we'll put it in the payload, Lachlan. What are you talking? Yeah, we'll put it in the payload again. No, Whoa. no. no. <laughs> This like irks me actually also because I've seen people do horrifying things with the TCP spec. So Oops. yeah, totally. So, so so now assume everyone kind of has the internet and and we've yeah. kind of taken for granted that that we do and yeah. we can share information. You know, even if you're in the outback or I, I've I've had video conferences from the middle of Africa, from you know all these places on the planet. There there's this other topic that you kind of introduced when we were talking offline about net neutrality and, and and you have some thoughts and maybe you want to kind of frame frame that and then we'll see where that goes. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, the, the stem of, of the interest in the internet was around connecting people and, you know, my work distributed systems hangs off the internet, right? It's something I take from gra for granted, just like the water in the faucet, right? Every, every day. Um, but my passion around that was just connecting people, right? If we got information to people who didn't, have it before i think that's a plus for society and and you know open source probably wouldn't exist the way that it does today without that information so i brought up net neutrality because this is something that i think is fairly concerning and horrifying for me um but i also would be interested to get your thoughts but 
you know, just to frame net neutrality for people who are listening in and don't know what it is. So everybody has access to the internet in its entirety when you pay one fee to your provider. If you get rid of, so the net is neutral, people don't favor content from one provider than another. Um, what the abolishment of net neutrality would mean is, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of boil it down to how it would affect me as a consumer is, I don't go to Comcast or my provider and say, I would like an internet connection. It's like, I have to pay for Netflix as another fee. I have to pay for Google as another fee. I have to pay for Wikipedia as another fee. And they, so basically I will get a view of the internet based on how much I can pay. So that segregates access to knowledge for people. Therefore, people who have more money have more access to knowledge. People with less money have less access to knowledge. And I feel like for the, for the internet and the idea it was built on, that is not in the best interest of humanity would be my kind of point of view with net neutrality. But I'd be interested, Jesse and, and Andrew, on your kind of perspective. Yeah, I mean, I like, it's hard because I, there are two sides to this. And like, I see like companies like Facebook take, you know, these like really cheap hardware chips and then they kind of like create with telcos, like ways of, you know, connecting people in places that would never be able to have the internet. But then the internet they get is like this very Facebook oriented internet. So it's like, cool, you can connect with other humans, um, but you aren't getting all the information that we have. Mm. Um, so that like also makes me sad as far as net neutrality. And I kind of wish like they had the power of the internet that we have. But then also you see these academic sites, you know, almost like ACM, if you want to download a paper, you have to log in and like be an ACM member. And like, that's like JSTOR as well. Um, that's also like this. All, all kind of, of the academic journals are behind paywalls. Yeah. Like all the real research. So it's sad okay. that like people can't access that information as well. And I know like um, people have done it and, you know, gone to the court battle in the past and like, you know, freed all these things from behind the paywall. But like, is that worth it? You know, going to jail over it? I don't know. Well, for the listener at home, you can almost always get any paper you want from the professor if you just email. Oh, that's good. Right, right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Good advice there. That, that, that's one little thing. But but also, I don't know, trying to be balanced, and I don't know how many different rabbit holes we want to go down, but in some sense, like, it calls into question, like, the ethics of capitalism and, and like, how all these things are, like, what's the motivation for building these things in the first place, right? And there's, there's also, like, this vein uh, around some of the stuff, like, surveillance state and, like, the way some of this stuff's being... Uh, use or misuse and, and and your employer I think there was a headline I read uh, either yesterday or today something about like they they didn't do a contract because they were worried about the abuse of the spatial recognition technology right and like being able to have access to some of this information when you start to aggregate all the information like it enables some things that are great but it also enables some things that are not as great and and it's just a kind of a question of like who who are we building this for and I think most people on this call and hopefully most people listening would want things to be better and better for humanity, whatever that means um, to each of us, probably slightly different, but it's also like very capital intensive to build this stuff in the first place. And for the most part, that motivation is largely uh, to, to collect rents or, or, you know, to, to make money off of it. And, and so I, I used to work a long time ago in ancient history. I, I worked for a company called America online and, and I feel like you sort of see these these patterns of like aggregation and disaggregation like happening over and over again. 
uh, I think in some ways like Pandora's box has been open and now that we can kind of talk to each other, we're not going to really stop talking to each other. Uh, we're not going to stop connecting, but some of this content and, and, you know, some of these things people are doing, it might be, unless, unless we're like activated um, politically, then have the political will, like it's probably at some point going to be hidden from us, at least certain aspects of it. But then as, as Jess pointed out, a lot of it's already hidden in other ways, right? And if you wanted to disrupt something about how humans have access to information, I feel like disrupting how these academic journals and research is available would be huge. Like that would move things forward. Like I, I run into this probably at least once a month where it's like, I'd like to read this paper and then, and then it's like hard. And, and like, you know, maybe I'll get it later. You know, maybe I'll get it from the professor, whatever. But, but like having access to information is something I think near and dear to everyone here's heart. Um, but it, it's not always exactly how we'd like it. Yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, the business models of the, the corporations that are providing the infrastructure was initially built on the fact that they were delivering that physical infrastructure, right? So they're all making that move to become content companies because, you know, once you commoditize the infrastructure, you can't charge a premium for it anymore. And then their business model shot. So they've got to kind of adjust. And this is where you see companies, you know, like Netflix has probably forced the hand of a lot of companies to create content. Um, but coming from and doing my time as a working on ISPs and things like that, it's like you want to get people's traffic off your network as fast as possible, unless it's destined for you. So if you transit people, if you're a transit organization, you want to peer with Netflix for lack of a better example, as soon as possible. So you can get their stuff off your network because that's stuff you can sell to somebody else. So, and this is, I feel like I, I understand the motivation to get rid of net neutrality for a bit from a business perspective, but I feel like the unintended consequences are much greater. I mean, that. this is, this is a game we're playing, right? We're, like we're constantly in this conflict, especially as technologists with kind of the ethics of all these things that we're doing. And this is maybe not the perfect metaphor, but I think it's related to what we're talking about, which is the, this Boeing um, 737 max, uh -huh. basically like they, they, they sort of like in-app, in-app purchased, safety for okay. for these airplanes right so if you didn't have enough money or chose not to for whatever reason to pay for safety then you didn't get safety because that was like a little software upgrade and so now we plowed two of those planes into the earth because someone somewhere and, and you know obviously engineers uh were part of this story on some level and then and then you know there's obviously other people involved that made decisions but someone Sitting in, in, you know, whatever, like they sleep, I don't know what language they dream in, they decided what we're going to do is we're going to make money monetizing safety, right? And so like that's maybe a far end of the spectrum, but I feel like the way the game is set up, people are always going to find ways that they can try to capture value and, and, and maybe some of those are going to cross these lines uh, of what we would consider ethical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really would love to see, you know, people have got to get out of this kind of bricks and mortar um, economies, like digging stuff out of the ground and selling stuff that we dug out of the ground. Like the value for, you know, the people is their, their minds and giving that access, like their educations and their understanding. Like the sooner we get out of this, you know, like I'm selling um, copper and I'm selling access to people 
or I'm selling not distributed knowledge. I feel like that's a much better, more scalable model. But you know, that's obviously has its own set of challenges. Uh, I mean, I feel like we're right on the edge of you know both this conversation and us as a as a culture and technology, where no one really needs to work, especially kind of like mundane tasks, right? So, in a world where the economy has been based on labor, if you move into this world where I mean, there's two pieces to it. So one is that there's probably no reason that anyone needs to do kind of a lot of this manual work that people have um, depended on for their livelihood for, for whatever reason. And I'm not going to say basic income, but I just said basic income. And then, and then on the other side of this, when you think about creating these things, the, the type of work that it is, you know, the mental models that you need to make good software to create the experiences that software enables, if you manage that like you're digging copper, if you manage that like like the Taylorism Industrial Revolution, which is you know essentially dominated management um, thought process for for decades uh, or century, however you want to think about it, uh, like we're we're evolving out of it. You know, and there, there's pieces of us. You know, I think DevOps movement has has captured some of this. Agile has captured some of this, where it's like knowledge work enables these things. But if if you try to uh, treat this process like digging ditches or building widgets, you're going to have a bad time. And, and I feel like most of the big IT failures that you see are because people managed their IT like they were, were like they're digging copper. Yeah, totally. And the, and the systems like I always think about, you know, um, the trash system, right? It's like if you want to recycle or compost, it's actually really hard to do because the system is set up for you to waste. Right. So intrinsically, you're fighting against the system that's been set up and you're displacing a lot of people from work and you're displacing a lot of systems that rely on the fact that there's going to be trash in the ground. But there's a whole pieces of the economy set up for that. So like when you feel, oh, I just need to compost or recycle. Why is that so hard? It's because there is a whole thing to make you do that. And that creates its own inertia, right? Well, once, oh, yeah. once you've created like people who have their livelihoods attached to a task, they're going to do everything they can to preserve that task. And that, this Absolutely. is, this thing, you know, watching people try to adopt network automation is a perfect example. System automation is another example. It's like, oh, don't tell us how to do this thing with networks. We did it for a long time. We know what we're doing. Like, we don't want to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so I feel like uh, that's been a whole episode. And thank you for coming on our show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me and, and congratulations on the podcast. I've been enjoying and I, I look forward to every week seeing a little snippet. So I love the uh, the d dichotomy between both of you and, and the way that you uh, reason. So thanks. Well, for we're, we're, we're having fun with this happy little accident and uh, we'll, we'll probably keep making these for a while. So yeah, no, keep it's, it dope. Up. it's dope. I'm, I'm creating fans out there. Hopefully I'm like, you got to listen to this podcast, but <laughs> thanks for Here's a little plug. We need we need people to subscribe to YouTube. Once we get to a hundred, we're almost we're we're like most of the way there. Then we can then get we a, get a custom URL. Yeah, then we get a van. <laughs> okay, you have my vote. I'll go subscribe after this. So that's everyone's action item. Subscribe. Okay, do it. Subscribe. Right. Perfect. We'll call it. We're Trick Mafia out. Uh -huh.